Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Canfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Ojibwe, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, a community working to promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out the list of Harbinger podcasts at harbingermedianetwork.com. This episode of Victor's Children is my interview with Moshe McCover. But before we get to that, I'd like to start by thanking one listener who on Instagram is at Lizar underscore history uh, for the wonderful illustration that uh, they made to uh, communicate the ideas that were in the last episode of Victor's Children, episode 36, on what kind of anti-imperialism. You can see a link to this uh, great illustration in the show notes for this episode. Uh, also, one thing in the upcoming interview, at one point, Moshe McCover refers to the quote-unquote 20th Congress uh, that refers to the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which happened in 1956. And at that event, the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev criticized the late Joseph Stalin for his uh, execution of many members of the Central Committee of the party and many members of the military high command in the 1930s, so-called excesses in agricultural collectivization and the deportations of uh, many minority nationalities, along with other so-called mistakes. And the importance of this is that that speech sent reverberations uh, through the parties around the world, which had looked to the USSR as socialist uh, and treated Stalin in a worshipful way. So it really opened up uh, you know, challenges to, to orthodoxy. Uh, and of course, later that same year, 1956, the Hungarian Revolution happened, which was bloodily crushed by the USSR. And again, this contributed to the crisis of the so-called official communist movement. So with that little uh, illusion explained. Let's get on to episode 37 of Victor's Children. In 1962, a handful of former members of the Israeli Communist Party formed the Israeli Socialist Organization, later renamed the Socialist Organization in Israel, but best known by the name of its magazine, Matzban, or Compass. For the two decades of its active existence, Matzban, a group of, made up of both Jewish Israelis and Palestinians, had a political impact inside and outside Israel that was far beyond its very small size, thanks to its uncompromising anti-Stalinist revolutionary socialist opposition to Zionism from within Israel, and its pioneering analysis of Israel as a settler colonial society, which influenced the radical left internationally. In the show notes for this episode, you'll find links to Matzban material online, related readings, and a video documentary about the group. Matzman's Marxist analysis and perspective for the struggle against Zionist settler colonialism are still very relevant today, so I'm honoured to be speaking with Moshe Makover. Moshe lives in the UK and is the only one of the four founding members of Matzman who's alive today, so thank you for joining me. I'd like to, I would like to start by asking you about Jabber Nicola, who played an important role in the group's development, but I think is too little known today. So could you tell listeners who Jabra was? Uh, Jabra Nicola was... Uh, a Palestinian Arab, uh, he would he would stress Arab, uh, Marxist, and in my view, the most original theoretician of uh, the 
prospects and the, and the, the direction of the uh, Arab Revolution. He was born in uh, 1912 in Haifa. Uh, his father was, uh, I think, uh, he was he was employed as in in the colonial administration of uh, Britain in Cyprus. But uh, he died when when Jabra was very young. I think he, he was 11. And uh, to cut a long story, a long story short, uh, the family became déclassé. Uh, Jabra's mother was cheated of of uh, uh, his father's inheritance by some some crook. And they they uh, ended in in poverty. So Jabra w- didn't complete uh, formal education after the, the uh, a very early age. He didn't complete his his uh, uh, elementary education formally. He was entirely self-taught. Uh, he uh, joined the Communist Party of Palestine, the Palestine Communist Party, uh, as as a young man. And his brilliance was recognized by, by the party. In 1935, I believe he was elected to the Central Committee of the, of the party. A very young man. Um, at some stage, he was <coughs> attracted to Trotsky's. By the way, I only knew Jabra in the last 11 years of his life. He died in 1974, I believe. Uh, so I, I uh, met him in 1963, early 1963, soon after Maspel was uh, founded. By what I've learned from various sources, he was attracted to Trotskyism around the year 1940. Now, he told me, actually, that uh, what attracted his attention was an article that was published in some Egyptian uh, journal about Trotsky's tendency in world uh, communist movement. I read elsewhere that uh, Egal Glückstein, also known as uh, Tony Cliff, later known as Tony Cliff, uh, persuaded him to join uh, a Trotskyist group that uh, existed in Palestine. Around, I think uh, Tony Cliff's report is, is that it happened in 1940, that in 1940 he, he joined after uh, discussions with Tony Cliff. Tony Cliff claimed that he converted Jabra to Trotskyism. That may or may not be true. Tony Cliff was a prominent member of this very small group, uh, made up mostly of refugees from Germany, Trotskyist refugees from Germany who ended up in Palestine, not by choice, but simply because they they had to go somewhere, uh, fled, uh, from the Nazi regime. Um, in 1942-43, the Communist Party split along national lines, and Jabra didn't join either the split. Either the, the he he helped, he supported uh, to some extent the activities of each of the two two groups, but didn't join either of them. I think this is this is uh, um, typical of him. He was he was the most anti-nationalist person I've ever met in the Marxist movement, thorough internationalist. And I, I don't think he liked the fact that uh, the party split along national lines. He was in, incarcerated by the British mandate along the other activists of the party after the, the outbreak of the war, but was released 
when the uh, the Soviet Union joined the 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 war after after the the uh, uh, Nazi invasion of of the Soviet Union. Okay, I mean, uh, I I as I said, I I came to know him in early 1963. Shortly after Maspen was founded, we published the paper, and this attracted his attention. During 1963, at some stage, he, he joined first of all informally and then formally, along with other uh, with a few other comrades in Haifa. It, it was at that stage that Maspen became, you know, international. That is to say, uh, uh, included comrades from both nationalities in 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 Israel. Uh, we were looking to uh, recruit Arab, uh, Palestinian Arab comrades, but uh, failed to, to make co- proper contact. You see, it was difficult while we were organizing. We were still in the uh, Communist Party, and it was very difficult to, or, to make contact across branches. You know, the, the, the sort of discipline in the uh, uh, Stalinist movement. The founders of Matsven happened to be in branches in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, where there were no Palestinian Arab com- members. We were trying to make contact with Haifa comrades, but as it happened, they found us. Instead of us finding them, they found us. And so uh, w- what I can say is that uh, Jabra had a-, a tremendous influence on the development of the ideas of Matsven. Uh, we, we we were not fully formed. It was fortunate that all this happened in the ni- 1960s. The period between the Suez War of 1956 and the June War of 1967 was the one with where the, the uh, issue of Israel and the Palestinians, Israel and the Arab world was most quiescent. There was very, very little happening. Uh, and so it, it gave us leisure to develop ideas. And it was in this period that uh, Jabra joined uh, Matspen very soon after it was formed. And uh, he had a, a, an enormous influence on the ideas of Matspen regarding uh, uh, the Palestinian situation and, and the Arab world in general. Can, could you outline the political approach then that was developed under his influence? Well, first of all, his uh, perspective was of Arab revolution rather than uh, uh, looking at the, the Palestinian or Israeli-Palestinian issue in, in, in the Palestine box. That was, that was the, 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 f- the first precept. And for reasons, I mean, the, 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 the logic behind this, I can explain later, but I mean, the, the bottom line was that the Palestinian problem cannot be solved under uh, capitalism, that it requires a social transformation, not just of the the Israel-Palestine box, but of the entire Arab region, at at the very least the Arab East, which means, you know, from the middle of Libya eastwards. What led him to this this conclusion is, is, you know, we can discuss later, but this was a precept. He also educated us regarding the effect of Zionist colonization on the evolution or the distorted evolution a Palestinian society from the, you know, uh, the, the start of 
Zionist colonization till the, the point we were talking about in, uh, after the creation of Israel. Uh, in his view, and I think it was correct, Zionist colonization uh, had a distorting effect on stunting the evolution of Palestinian Arab society, which was on in the start of Zionist colonization, when it started in the beginning of the 20th century, it was on the threshold of modernity. He also helped us to form together with him an analysis of the specific nature of Zionist colonization. As, as you probably know, Marxist analysis recognizes basically three types of colonization in modern times. I'm talking about modern times. There is a plantation colonization of which the southern, what became the southern part of the United States is, is an example, the West Indies, Brazil. There is political economy is based on the exploitation of indigenous labor force, which is uh, what happened in, in uh, a lot of uh, Africa, in much of Africa, especially after the Vienna Congress. A prime example is perhaps South Africa, where uh, the political economy was based on the indigenous exploitation of the indigenous labor force. They, the main producers were indigenous people. And finally, there is uh, the uh, model of colonization which is familiar in the north of North America, uh, Canada and, and, and the, the non-slave states of the United States, what, what became the non-slave states of the United States, and in which uh, the uh, main labor force, the main direct producers are themselves settlers. This is roughly what is in, known in academic discourse, post-colonial discourse, a settler colonialism, but academic discourse fails to make a crucial distinction between the settler colonialism of South Africa and the settler colonialism of, of North America, Australia, for example, and Palestine. In, in, in both cases, there is a lot of presence of settlers. There is a fairly large community of settlers, but the political economy is quite different, and for Marxists, this is a crucial difference. So, uh, to cut a long story short, we came very soon, and, and this was for us not, not, uh, not a difficult uh, 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 idea to digest. I mean, we are quite prepared and mentally and, and ideologically to uh, uh, accept this analysis. The Zionist colonization belongs to that type of colonization, which is, uh, whose political economy is based uh, mainly on the uh, uh, settlers as direct producers. And then, of course, the, uh, what happens is that in, in this type of colonization, the indigenous population is surplus to requirement. Uh, and that, that is really the key to understand the history of Zionist colonization, I think it, it's also the key to, understand the, to understanding a lot of the history of North America, by the way, under very different circumstances, because uh, Zionist colonization, although belonging to the same time, is a very atypical uh, member of this group for various reasons. I've, I've written about this, and uh, you can see in uh, uh, articles that I have written over the years, uh, still the great influence of the ideas of Jabra Nicola. So perhaps we could then move to the political implications, because as you've you know, said, 
this analysis has certain important political implications. And, you know, you've argued, for example, that, you know, uh, unlike in what happened in South Africa, if we look at, at Palestine, you've argued there does not exist a social force that could lead uh, a so-called bourgeois democratic decolonization. In other words, uh, there's no social force that could dismantle Zionist settler colonialism and create a capitalist democracy with equal rights for all citizens. So could you explain that for listeners? Let, let, let me put it this way. In order to decolonize Israel-Palestine, uh, what it means in this context, it has to be de-Zionized. The Zionist regime has to be overthrown. The point is that unlike the case of South Africa, where the indigenous labor force had a huge leverage on the economy of South Africa. It was, it was not surplus to require when it, it was the basis of the whole economy. Uh, they had a leverage which enabled them to overthrow the apartheid regime in South Africa and make some gains even short of uh, achieving socialism. During the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, uh, it was often mentioned by the, the anti-apartheid movement, both in and outside South Africa, that it, 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 this uh, liberation is going to lead to socialism. This did not happen. Nevertheless, the South African working class, mostly indigenous people, uh, made some undeniable gains, even without achieving socialism. In other words, there were gains that the, this class could make even short of achieving uh, political power, which it, it hasn't, but nevertheless be liberated from, from apartheid. And it was crucial in, in overthrowing the apartheid regime in, in, in South Africa. I think people outside South Africa have, in my opinion, a rather exaggerated view of the influence of outside forces on the overthrow of, of the apartheid. Without the activity of the South African working class, it wouldn't have happened. I think two, the two main factors in the overthrow of apartheid was uh, the inner struggle of the uh, working class and the uh, defeat of South Africa in, in what was uh, Southwestern Africa, in, in Namibia, etc. It was a military defeat. None of this is likely in the case of Israel. There is no analogous force. The idea that the Zionist regime can be overthrown from outside by outside forces is illusory. I think if you just look at the balance of forces, it's not, it's been tried, but all, all attempts at overthrowing the Israeli state from the outside ended in predictable dismal failure. I think it leads to the conclusion, and I think Jabra saw it before you know, most people realized it, that the overthrow of the Zionist regime must be an inside job. That is to say, it must be done by whom? Not, not by the, the Palestinian subjects who were, uh, when, when we were uh, when we met, I mean, the, the majority of the Palestinian people were refugees in, in, in inside Jordan and in other Arab countries. There was a small, relatively small minority of Palestinians in, in, in Israel itself. It would have to be the Israeli Jewish working class who would have to be at least a partner 
in the overthrow of the Zionist regime. But then, what would be the gain of the uh, Israeli Jewish working class in overthrowing the Zionist regime? If it would uh, end up, as uh, many good people project, in a secular democratic bourgeois state, then it would mean for the Jewish working class exchanging its position of an exploited class, but as part of a, a privileged nation, the exploiting nation, exchanging this uh, status to a status of a still exploited working class in as part of a non-privileged uh, national uh, uh, entity. What is the gain in this? Why should the Israeli working class want to, to exchange its position of a, a part of a, a privileged dominant national group to a position of a, a part of a non-privileged national group without gaining anything uh, else, this would would be not attractive for the Israeli Jewish working class. On the other hand, given a socialist transformation, which would have to be regional, I mean, thinking of a socialist transformation in the Israeli-Palestinian box is, is, is absurd, would have to be a regional transformation of a socialist nature, then the Israeli working class would be offered the deal of exchanging its position of an exploited class, which is part of a dominant nation, to a position of a ruling, part of a ruling class, but without national privileges. This is a, a deal that makes historical sense. And I think this, this projection led uh, Jabra, and uh, he persuaded us to uh, the idea that the resolution of the Palestinian-Israeli uh, uh, conflict would have to assume a socialist transformation, which would have to be uh, regional as part of a socialist Arab revolution. You've brought up the really important question of the national or settler colonial privileges of the Jewish-Israeli working class. Um, and I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that for listeners, because, you know, I'm, you know, living in the, the Canadian state where the there's certainly also settler colonial privilege that's conferred on non-Indigenous people. Uh, but I think the scale, the magnitude uh, of those privileges uh, are much greater in the case of the Israeli working class, I think uniquely greater in the world today. So I'm wondering if you could say something about the analysis of, of that, uh, of the Israeli Jewish working class that, that was developed in Matzben and, and maybe any thoughts you might have today about the magnitude of those national privileges. Well, I, I, I think, first of all, if we, we look at the Palestinian working class outside the, the Green Line, that is to say in the, in the occupied territories, then the difference in, in, in rights is huge. It has been defined uh, by various human rights organizations, including the main Israeli ones, Bezalem, as, as apartheid. Of course, we have to be careful in using this term apartheid because it, uh, it doesn't mean apartheid in the same sense as in South Africa. As I explained, the situation there was very different in, in, in the political economy, was was entirely different. But apartheid as defined by international law, there is, a, there is an international definition of the crime of apartheid, and this applies. I, 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 I find it hard to, to, to think where to begin. I mean, the uh, Israeli Jewish working class living in a, what is an approximation to a, a liberal democracy. 
Well, it's not quite a liberal democracy. A, a lot of it is a facade, but there is there are still a lot of elements of uh, uh, protection of of individual rights, uh, freedom to organize uh, in trade unions, etc., etc. The, the Palestinian Arab workers in the occupied ter- territories are devoid of any rights. I mean, there is some employment of, of this labor force in, in Israel. It's not a crucial uh, part of the Israeli economy. Nevertheless, they are employed in, in uh, uh, conditions that are not only hugely different in terms of, of uh, uh, the remuneration, the, the, but in terms of actually the ability to reach your, your workplace. I mean, the Palestinian worker mostly, I mean, those who who are lucky enough to have a, a, a permit to be employed in, in Israel itself or in the uh, settlements, uh, nevertheless have enormous uh, obstacles in, in getting to work. The majority of the, the Palestinian working class in, in uh, the occupied territories are uh, suffering from a huge level of unemployment. For, uh, the, uh, the level of pay is abysmal, etc., etc. They are living under a colonial, direct colonial rule. The position of Arab workers inside Israel, those who are citizens of Israel, is a little bit better, but far inferior to the, those uh, of the, the Israeli Jewish workers. Until uh, 1966, the Palestinian Arab community within Israel was still under martial law. There was military rule that controlled, they controlled their movements. They, they needed permits to go from one place to another. Uh, their their uh, lives was, were uh, directly controlled by the Israeli military. To a great extent, although the formal military rule has been lifted, to a great extent uh, there is an extreme level of discrimination in, in pay condition and in civil rights between Israeli Jewish workers and, and Palestinian Arab workers inside Israel. Those, I'm, I'm stressing those who are still. So uh, th- this, is, this is the situation. I mean, uh, if you want to uh, get detailed picture of, of, of this discrimination, then uh, a good place to look is uh, the website of Adala. Adala uh, has a website in Arabic, Hebrew, and English, where uh, Adala means justice in Arabic, and it is an, uh, an organiza- organization of uh, uh, human rights, especially workers' rights of Palestinians uh, inside Israel mainly. Uh, you can find out a lot of the uh, uh, aspects of discrimination in uh, terms of laws and practices which are not enacted by law, but are, are customary discrimination. So I think we can look at the um, the, the legacy of, of Matzpin and, and see that, unfortunately, um, the approach that it advanced was not widely adopted, um, to say the least, by Palestinian socialists or by socialists in other parts of the region in the 1970s or, or since then, although there have been and still are some socialists who support it or something quite similar to it. Do you have any thoughts about how we explain this, the, the lack of influence of this important perspective and what the main obstacles have been to this kind of a politics being more widely adopted in the region? 
I I think that the explanation for this is not to be sought in in purely local circumstances. I think what we are what we are talking about really is the decline, the defeat of the revolutionary Marxist uh, movement uh, since the 1970s. We managed to make some gains uh, at the time, but about the time the Jabra uh, uh, died here in London was the beginning of a big recession. I think you could uh, raise the same question, not just regarding Israel, Palestine, the Middle East, the Arab, Arab world, but worldwide. The, the reasons for this, I think it's, it's, it would, would take us far away from the specific subject. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm the best pe- person to uh, analyze the uh, reasons for this uh, decline. But uh, the, the, the phenomenon itself is, I, I think, unmistakable. We are, we are living in, in, in a period of defeat of the working class. There is also some specific reason. I think Jabra, uh, Matspen split several several ways, but the, the most important and damaging split was between uh, the uh, members of Matsven who were mem- were affiliated, like Jabra, to the uh, Mandelite Fourth International, and those of us who did not want to affiliate Matsven. The paradox was that although Jabra himself was uh, affiliated to uh, this Fourth International, and the group that followed this route actually got very far from his ideas about about the Arab nationalism. They they over the years, until uh, they ceased to exist, went uh, in a direction that was the polar opposite of what Jabra advocated. In other words, they uh, uh, got close to supporting Palestinian nationalism, which was anathema for, for, for Jabra. I mean, Jabra warned when the, the Fatah of uh, the leading uh, uh, nationalist uh, movement in the, in the Palestinian uh, uh, community uh, was at its highest uh, level of influence. He warned that Arafat, the leader of this movement, will betray the Palestinian cause. Uh, he warned us against this. Uh, he was enormously suspicious of the PLO, uh, very critical. Those who were supposed to follow his uh, uh, Trotskyist worldview, uh, who seceded from Matspen in 1972, actually took the opposite view. They got sort of close to uh, su- supporting, with very little uh, criticism, the position of uh, uh, Fatah. Uh, and and the, the PLO generally. So this this the, the people who were supposed to actually carry forward his ideas and who had contact with their co- uh, corresponding groups in the Arab world for what it's worth. I mean, they weren't huge, but there was some some people in Lebanon, for example. Uh, they they instead of of advocating his ideas, they uh, uh, very soon drifted. In, in an opposite direction. Paradoxically, the people who uh, remained sort of advocating and uh, developing the ideas that Jabra uh, uh, was responsible for were the non-Trotskyists in, in Matspeh. Uh, this is the way things happened. But uh, we lacked the 
organizational contact with with uh, fraternal groups in in the Arab world. We had a, a lot of individual contact with with prominent Arab socialists in various Arab countries. This this was open and advertised and 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 uh, uh, published. But uh, the failure was to create regional organization that would carry forward these ideas. And without without a, a, an actual organization, ideas are very difficult to uh, translate into practice. Perhaps I would just add for the sake of listeners who may not know the history, of course, that we really need to remember that in the 1970s, Stalinism still had a tremendous influence on the on the left, including the Palestinian left, with its ideas of a, a two-stage theory of the struggle that where national liberation would have to precede any specifically anti-capitalist stage and a whole conception of socialism, you know, the idea that, that there was a there were really you know actually existing socialist countries that would be an ally of the struggle and so on. Could you say something briefly about that p- political context, which is perhaps unfamiliar for some listeners? Well, I mean, th- this for us was was a, a formative concept because because uh, the the very creation of Spain was a, a a move first of all against the the uh, Stalinism of the uh, official communist movement. I mean, we were well, you, you said that we were members of the communist party. The, the people originally found, uh, formed the, the the kernel of Spain. Some of us were members. Some of us were were uh, supporters of of the uh, the communist party. But uh, following the uh, 20th Congress and various other developments, the, the, the events in Hungary in 1956 and various other similar developments, uh, we began to be critical of, of uh, the Soviet Union, no, no longer uh, taking uh, uh, idea that uh, you know, the Soviet Union is the, the, the great light of nations. Uh, we at first did not uh, 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 subscribe to the idea that the, the Soviet Union was not socialist. We uh, regarded it as some kind of deformed socialism. Or, uh, uh, but but uh, what we were rebelling against is, is the... the fact that the uh, communist parties outside the Soviet bloc were actually used as as uh, public relations uh, uh, agencies for the Soviet Union. They were not engaged in fighting for socialist revolution, but they were actually uh, in, in, engaged in furthering the, in, the, for, the international foreign interests of the Soviet Union. Example of that was the, the events, for example, in, in, in Iraq in 1958, where the, I, I, I would not uh, have time to go into the details of what happened. The, the uh, anti-royalist revolution that took place in 1958, where uh, the Communist Party turned out to be the most powerful, the well-organized, a party that that uh, was able to preserve itself in opposition, but instead of trying to achieve power for the Iraqi working class, it uh, uh, followed the instructions of of the Soviet leadership and and fought for uh, the role of the second violin in the in the Iraqi uh, political constellation. 
And of course, they ended up by being, being uh, decimated, slaughtered, and, 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 and so on. This happened in, in several other countries. Once we were outside of the Communist Party, it was easy for us to develop a more thorough critique of uh, Stalinism. Uh, Jabra uh, also helped in, in this respect. In, in we, without accepting, uh, let us say, the, the, the full package of Trotsky's uh, uh, critique and the, the uh, traditional program and so on, we didn't necessarily accept this, but the, the, the kernel idea that what we had there is not, not a, a Marxist idea of socialism, that, that was easy to, to uh, digest. And we, we soon sort of uh, uh, took this position, so more thorough critical of, of uh, uh, the Soviet Union. Thank you. So perhaps as we move to wrap up, um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about the, you know, to what extent the kind of analysis, um, the approach that Matsuba developed needs to be modified today in light of, of changes in the region or changes in the world, or more broadly, any closing thoughts you might have about the implications of this political legacy for socialists today? Uh, uh, my idea about this is that maybe you regard this as perverse, but I think that very little has has to be modified in essence. I think the basic idea is valid. Uh, there has been the, the main change that, that uh, occurred uh, over those decades is uh, that whereas when Matspen was formed and still in the 1970s, the idea of uh, Arab unification was, uh, un at least a secular idea of Arab unification was, was quite widespread and popular. It, receded and uh, secular Arab nationalism has been uh, has receded and in its place we have the the rise of Islamic ideology I mean in in the 1950s 1960s Islamism was in 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 retreat bourgeois Arab nationalism was secular so I, I mean this this uh, left at least a, a, a margin for socialists to advance a, 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 the kind of the kind of Marxist analysis and Marxist uh, program uh, that is essentially uh, secular and goes beyond the uh, confines of, of bourgeois nationalism. This has receded, but from time to time you see a resurgence of the, of this idea, and I, I think that the, the, a, a very interesting moment uh, in recent times is the Arab Spring of 2011. Suddenly, out of almost apparently nowhere, the feeling of Arab unity, that is to say the fact that the Arab world is one, one entity divided by imperialists, uh, but that uh, is really a, in, in some sense one domain whose uh, development um, events in one part of it are echoed and have direct influence in in other parts of the same region. This suddenly came uh, up was was uh, felt in practice. Obviously, uh, it didn't last very long, but it's a it's a, a kind of preview of what can happen. And in in a way, it 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 was a confirmation that under the surface. The ideas that we 
advocated long ago are not uh, without, uh, uh, let us say, viability in the, in the present situation. I'm sure that once uh, revolutionary developments will take place in one part of the Arab world, it will have an immediate uh, echo and repercussion in other parts of the, of the same region, because it is, it is really one, uh, one region uh, that has been balkanized by uh, imperialist domination. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word of mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. 